Posted at Smirconish.com is a provocative essay now in the Atlantic, What It Takes to Be a Trial Lawyer If You're Not a Man. Laura Bazelon is a professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law, also the author of the forthcoming book, Rectify the Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. This is Professor Bazelon. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I will have you know that in 10 years of trying cases as a plaintiff's lawyer, never did I file a no-crying motion. In fact, I'd never even heard of a no-crying motion until I read your piece. Well, I'm glad you didn't, and neither had I before I talked to Elizabeth Faea, but she sent me all the no-crying motions that had been filed against her, and there were a number of them. So do tell to a lay audience, what is that? Basically, what it means is your opposing counsel files a motion with the judge asking that he make a ruling precluding or preventing you from displaying any kind of overwrought emotion, crying, getting tearful, with the idea that as a woman you're doing it to manipulate and prey upon the emotions of the jury. Is this something that that is uh, more common than either of us realized? I don't know. I think with this particular litigator, Elizabeth Faea, she's incredibly successful. She's one of the top 100 plaintiff's lawyers in the country. So I imagine it makes her somewhat of a target for opposing counsel. And somehow I think this rumor, which she decries as false, got started against her, which is that she would cry in front of juries in these very high-stakes medical malpractice cases. She says she's never cried once. But it kind of took on a life of its own. They all talk to each other. And then in every single case, she gets this motion. Is the purpose to make sure she doesn't cry or to plant a seed with the judge so that perhaps there'll be some bias directed toward her as the trial unfolds? I think it's twofold. So if you ask the lawyer in this particular case, David Doyle, he was very clear that he believed that it was a righteous motion and he was justified in filing it. But if you ask Elizabeth Faea, what she says is it's designed to do exactly what you said, which is instill doubt in the judge about her competence, about her her ability to be sort of honest and forthright, and really plant the seed that she's actually somewhat manipulative. So, Professor, in 2016, for the first time, more women admitted to law school than men. So perhaps the trend I'm about to identify will change. But you say you'd never know it from those who show up and actually litigate cases. I think that's right. And there are a number of reasons for why, as women go on in their careers, you see fewer and fewer of them at the top ranks of law firms, even at the top ranks of prosecutor and public defender offices where you are in the courtroom trying cases. I do hope that now that women are, as you say, for the first time, the majority of graduating students and perhaps ultimately are going to take their rightful place and have an equal number of seats at the table, we will see a change. But for women like me, now going well into my second decade of practice, I have to tell you that it has not changed that much. Is it that women don't get into the courtroom or they don't get to litigate on the civil side the, the big ticket cases or on the criminal side the, you know, the death cases, those that carry the risk of a great punishment? So on the civil side, I think you're exactly right that a lot of times they are sidelined. And it may be because the defendant who has deep pockets tells the law firm, what I really want is a strong man, and there's a signal sent there, whether it's overt or covert, that keeps many of them sidelined. I think in the realm of public defense and prosecution, where it's a more level playing field, I've talked to a number of prosecutors who have told me For whatever reason, it seems that in their offices, for example, a lot of the women end up in the family law unit or in the sex crimes unit, and that when you look towards, say, the homicide unit, it's overwhelmingly dominated by men.
you say that the sources of bias, judges, senior attorneys, juries, even the clients themselves, I have often said, in fact, I've had this conversation with my colleague here on radio, that in my experience of trying cases, women could be very difficult, uh, how do I say this, judges of other women. In other words, I, I wonder if some of the bias is female on female. I think that is also true. So, for example, there's a story in the piece about this extremely successful litigator, Kyla Baldwin, who has this rule where she always wears heels in front of the jury, and she had tendinitis, and she couldn't. She was wearing flats. And the juror who critiqued her afterwards, and you have to understand this is an incredibly complicated substantive trial where millions of dollars are at stake, criticized her shoes, and that juror was a woman. So I think you are correct that oftentimes the harshest judges of women can be other women. Let's talk about pantyhose. Go ahead. Uh, Yes. So they are horrible. I mean, I used to joke with my colleagues at the Federal Public Defender's Office about who had it worse, pantyhose or having to wear a tie. And I just think that pantyhose win hands down. They're just so uncomfortable. They're so awful. And I will say that the one small stride that I've made in my own life is that I now refuse to wear them. Quote, but showing up in federal court with bare legs was as unthinkable as showing up drunk, you write. Yes, that's true. When I was at the public defender's office, federal public defender's office from 2001 to 2008, it was unthinkable. You would never, ever show up without pantyhose on. I mean, my idea as a guy was to just show up looking plain. I can remember trying a case in central Pennsylvania and going to a Walmart the night before trial when I realized I had packed French cuffs as I packed my bag in Philadelphia. So I I went to Walmart and I bought five white button-down shirts so that there'd be no cuff that I would be showing when I tried that case. But that was as far as I had to take it. I really never thought about women's courtroom attire until I read your essay. It's really interesting. I bet that you put in exactly five to ten minutes of prep before Max. you go into court. Max for my appearance, yes. It, for your appearance, exactly. Yeah. No, I'm sure as, an, as a lawyer right. you put in thousands of hours. Right. But when it comes to just presenting yourself physically, you probably put in about five minutes and don't think about it anymore. Most women, they, they think about the night before, what am I going to wear? What jewelry am I going to wear that's nice but conservative looking and not flashy? How am I going to have my hair? What color is my suit? What color is my blouse? Because every single eye in the courtroom is, is on you. It's on your body. And when you open your mouth, it's, it's listening to your voice. Do you have verbal fry? Are you shrill? All these things that are constantly being thrown at women, they're being assessed in this very almost microscopic way that we always have to be aware of. You report that female trial attorneys routinely report that male judges critique their voices as too loud or too shrill. Something else, by the way, I would never have to worry about in trying a case. Yet that is another really interesting issue with women. And in fact, just going back to Ms. Baldwin again, she her biggest verdict was a $57.1 million verdict in Philadelphia in a medical malpractice case. And she said the judge interrupted her three times during her closing argument to tell her how shrill she was being and said something to the effect of, Ms. Baldwin, they can hear you three courtrooms down. Keep your voice down. Hmm. He may have done her a favor, by the way. I think he might on have. The th- on the, the third time. Thing. On yes. the third time, right? Yes, I think that juries (laughs) tend to see that kind of interaction, and it actually doesn't play very well for the judge. Okay, so sum up. Where do you think we're headed in this regard? 
I think that there is a confluence between just a rising awareness and willingness to speak out about this kind of sexism and Me Too. They're not the same, but there is some overlap and relationship. And I think that movement is going to power some more change in the judicial system, civil and criminal. That said, I think, as you very well know, that whole institution is much slower to accept social change. You know, uh, but a, a change has to come from clients. I mean, there's there's an offensive line in your piece. I was unclear whether it was said to you or someone that you were interviewing where somebody says, I want a Jew lawyer. And then the person says, well, I am Jewish. And then, no, no, I want a man Jew. And that was my client. Yes. Really? <laughs> that was my client. Yes. By the way, right. did, you, did you keep that client or did I he did, keep you? I, I kept him, yes. I mean, of course, because he had no money, he didn't really have much of a choice. But with so many of my clients, you start from a place of having to prove yourself to them. And that may be true of public defenders more generally, but I think for female public defenders in particular. I do agree with you. I think some change has to come from the clients. And I think we're seeing in some of these cases, these Escher cases, these cases involving real harm to women, whether it's discrimination in the workplace or some kind of medical device that went terribly wrong, that you have clients on both sides, you know, Johnson & Johnson, Ethicon, but then also the plaintiffs who realize they are actually better off with women because they're more effective. Just one other observation for me, if you'll permit. I think that sometimes the, the highest profile attorneys uh, often will perpetuate the stereotypes that people have about the bar. So if I think of high-profile female lawyers, I think that many people think, ah, that's what I'm getting if I, if I hire a female attorney. I'm 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 working I'm working overtime here, Professor, not to say Gloria Allred. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I think that there's this other problem, right, which is that a lot of people come at this issue from a place of scarcity, and they think, oh, well, there's only one seat reserved for the woman at the table, and that's my seat. There are no other seats. There are no other tables. You can't have this seat. And then what we're stuck with is, is this idea that sort of there's the woman's seat, and then you have whatever woman you imagine being in there, whether it's Gloria Allred or one of the top three or four women lawyers that we can come up with that we can name. And in fact, there's so much more room and there are so many other tables for all kinds of different women so that we don't have to constantly be defaulting to this one single person thinking that, oh, there's only this one chair that that one person can sit in. I thought the essay was great. Congratulations on, uh, on writing it and get back to your vacation. Thank you so much. It was a delight to talk Thank to you. Thank you. That's Laura Bazelon, a professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law, author of the forthcoming book, Rectify the Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction, the essay from The Atlantic, What It Takes to Be a Trial Lawyer If You're Not a Man. TC, would you be loath to hire a woman to represent your interests? I, I'd hire her any day right, of hire. the week. Oh, my goodness. Right. I liked her very much. No, no, no. I would, I would hire a woman in a second, of course. It would have, but but it is incredible to me, and it doesn't surprise me because in 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 our line of work, TV more than me than radio, a woman has to think about every single thing they do. I mean, think about the hair and makeup and clothes and shade and cut and and underwear. I mean, you have to make sure nothing bulges. I mean, you got, I, everything matters when you're a woman, and it's just fascinating to me. I really hadn't thought about the difference in appearance prep time. Right. Well, and you don't even have Until any I read hair, this. for God's sake. Well, I mean, that, that does take me God. 10 minutes to, to shave my noggin. Oh, that's and true. I, and I had uh, male pattern baldness when I was trying cases. Ah. I had not yet shaved my head. Wish that I had. I think you probably still have male pattern baldness, at, but at you that, just shave your head. At that point, it may have looked scary to the jury. Stop. <laughs> because black guys were shaving their heads, but, but not white guys unless they were, 
you know, uh, neo-Nazi types. Oh, well, you couldn't have that. I was sort of on the cusp of you were of when it be- Exactly. Very different. But I did not. I, so she's making me think, OK, how many times did I have cases against female lawyers? And the answer is not often. Not often, yeah. And how many times was I trying a case against a female lawyer? Very rarely. Uh, one particular. Female, OK, think about female politicians. And what they one, have to I have one, one particular case where I, I tried shrill, a case shrill. Mm-hmm. early on against a very capable female opponent who now is a legal titan, is the, the chair of one of the largest law firms in the world. But, both, but back when we were both junior lawyers, I remember having a case with her and then settling the case, and then my client uh reneged on a settlement agreement Uh after signing off on it then but before we were adjourned had a change of heart and said that she hadn't and then that created this this odd situation where defense counsel and i were working in concert to (laughs) uphold to uphold a settlement agreement and uh and it held and and it held but that's just one memory that i have of uh, female opposition in the courtroom shoes or hair for example no, I remember that she was tough, uh, and I also understand that I can say that she was tough, and she could say that I was tough or not so tough. But if I were to say that her voice annoyed me, of then that's then that's terrible, right. right? Right. But my voice may have annoyed her, possibly. It, it may still annoy her <laughs> exactly. since it's still being heard these many years later. All right, interesting, interesting. Uh, like what it her. takes to be a trial lawyer? If you're not now, again, final thought from me. Maybe Please. the trend changes because now more women. Admitted to law school than men as of <clears throat> 2016. So perhaps it shifts, and if it doesn't, then it will be bias because it won't be based on volume.